Today on Heavy Networking, we're talking data center operations and automation. Data centers aren't immune from the pressures being felt across the IT organization, so things like enabling new applications and services more quickly, getting better visibility to monitor performance and speed up troubleshooting, and tying into new capabilities that come from automation, API, containers, and microservices. So today's sponsor, Nokia, has been thinking about these pressures, and they're here to talk about their fabric-based approach to the data center. That approach includes the SR Linux Network OS, its fabric services system intent-based platform, its NetOps development kit, or NDK, and how it all ties together to address your operational lifecycle across day zero, day one, day two, and beyond. We're going to talk with our guest, Bruce Wallace. He's Senior Director of Product Management on how it all comes together. We're going to get some real-world customer examples of how Nokia's portfolio enables automation and orchestration. And we're going to look at the future of data center operations driven by containers and microservices. Uh, so, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. And you can get us started just to you know, sort of give us that overview of SR Linux, Fabric Services, and NDK, how it all fits together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, thanks, thanks for having me again. So... We've uh, we've kind of gone through the entire portfolio over the last couple of years on packet pushers, talking about each one of the uh, the things we wanted to talk about today. So yeah, I think a good place to start is a little bit of a, a recap. So we launched uh, our data center portfolio back in uh, in 2020, and we came to the market with uh, kind of the full stack. We had a uh, an operating system which we call SR Linux. Mm -hmm. We had a, a controller or an automation platform that we call the Fabric Services System. And there was a ton of nuance around how this all fits together using standard interfaces, trying to make the data center as consumable, specifically kind of the networking side of the data center as consumable as the uh, the application teams have become used to on the application side of the world. So we uh, we started with the operating system. Um, I think that was the first thing we, we spoke about on, yeah. uh, on packet mm -hmm. pushers. And really, this was trying to figure out, you know, what an operating system being built in, it was 2018 at the time, actually mm. looks like, you know, what are operators really asking for? We had a, a clean sheet in front of us to build from. We, of course, had a, a pretty interesting launch customer in Apple, uh, who mm -hmm. were rolling us out into their data centers. That's right. And we also, I mean, you guys know a little bit about Nokia. Predominantly, we, uh, we serve a service provider style customer. So, you know, trying to build a product that caters to... This, uh, this probably hyper-complex customer, like a, a hyperscaler uh, that wants a lot of DIY, a lot of extensibility, and a service provider who uh, typically wants more of a turnkey approach. They want the thing to just work, and they're okay consuming it, how it kind of comes out of the box. So lots of themes in SR Linux around, around that and in terms of making the, the operating system kind of look and feel like it's more one mm -hmm. with the environment it's living in. Yeah, but it's it's basically, it's like a... The, the SR Linux is built on Linux for a start. Mm -hmm. It's container, supports containers, and yep. the whole architecture is ground up designed to be modern. So it's modular. Uh, it's Indeed. meant to be written by APIs as much as C So it's none of this legacy sort of, yeah, we put an API on the CLI on top of the, you know, it's, yeah. it's got a very modern internal architecture, but also the very operational focus on the architecture. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah, that's a good way of summarizing it. And certainly, yeah. I think we took more of like an API first approach to the operating system, where, you know, we used to take CLI first approaches right. to the operating system yeah. and then, then bolt on the APIs. So, well, see, I mean, looking back, CLI was fine when we didn't change the network much, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with the CLI and it still remains the like the reference, if you like. But the point is that we're now we want to be able to change our networks all the time, every day you know, yep. multiple times a day in live. No, you know, you don't spend months researching a change before you activate it at 2 a.m. on Saturday night. It's all changes all the time. That's the new requirement. And so you need an operating system that can support multiple changes happening at the same time that can, you know, do all of the activities that you need. 
without breaking. But also tie into modern operational tool chains as well. Yeah, it's a bit of a task. <laughs> so, so yeah, exactly. Thinking about what that would look like and, you know, where we saw networking in general heading was all or part of kind of those initial initial design discussions. I mean, doing things model driven, right? That's a bit of a given in this day and age. But unfortunately, you know, it wasn't where we started. So people have had to kind of bolt on data models as they've as they've kind of grown into their operating system. So we had a clean yeah. slate so we could embed them very, very low down in the architecture, which allows machines to make better decisions because they're getting finer granularity and being able to stream absolutely everything off the box. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it, it's all about just giving more information to the surrounding mm -hmm. ecosystem the operating system is living in, whilst having it look and feel like your typical operating system. You know, you can yeah. log into CLI. But the operating system is not as important now. It mm -hmm. used to be the center of our universe, but now it's as much the SDN platform. So in your case, it's the fabric service system. Indeed. Which operates it. You know, really the only time you see the operating system for a lot of the administrative tasks is the time that you deploy it and you troubleshoot it, but most of the time you spend in FSS, right? In the fabric services system. Yeah, yeah. Good little segue to uh to fabric services system there. So so yeah, it, exactly true. So you know, it's more than just the operation, especially in the data center where mm. things are a lot more cookie cutter. Um, you know, you're often building a design well, well ahead of time and then, you mm. know, deploying a network. So uh, we wanted to to take a look at how uh, how these these general life cycle style tasks are completed at a fabric level, and that's that's really where a fabric services system started. So it's Kubernetes based, runs natively on Kubernetes. You know, it has the kind of scale out architecture and microservices style architecture you would expect to see in a modern application. But it's kind of purpose built around this wave of intent based automation and how that specifically applies to uh, to the data center. So mm. there's a a few pretty awesome things in there that I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. And we've actually spoken about them in, in previous episodes too. One of them is our, our digital sandbox, which is a digital twin of the network. And I, I don't want yeah. to dive too too deep on that now because we're going to talk about it in a little bit. But that kind of is more of like an operational tool allowing you to roll changes, allowing you to mock up uh, designs, things like that. We recognize that you know, whilst there is a big upheaval from an infrastructure standpoint when you're deploying data centers, so kind of before you actually roll out the physical hardware, you're doing your designs and you're trying to figure out how you address links, then the actual rollouts are doing zero touch provisioning and things like that. There's also like those two pieces are large and are a big hurdle to get over. But really, most mm. of the time you spend interacting with a fabric is after it has been deployed. Yeah. And, and that wasn't true 20 years ago or 10 years ago when we were doing you know, three-tiered VLAN trunking, yeah. SDP, just in case you haven't caught up with it. Now it's very much you you lay down the switches in a particular architecture, you rip-stop the cabling in place, and then you start configuring EVPNs over the top, you know, with VXLANs and various properties and privileges. Indeed. It really is a completely different environment. It is, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot more churn after the initial kind of uh, deployment mm -hmm. of the fabric and you gain a lot for doing that, but of course it adds complexity to the uh, the overall solution. And of course, uh, every operator in the audience, I'm sure, is sitting there screaming every time you touch the network, you can bring the network down. So <laughs> yeah. trying to you know standardize that interface, make it highly scalable, make it uh, as, uh, you know, quote unquote, safe as we possibly can. FSS is, or a fabric services system or FSS, I'll say both interchangeably. I'm not supposed mm -hmm. to say FSS, but um, <laughs> the... <laughs> The the interesting part is that this is automation, right? And the purpose of the automation Indeed. is to be able to do the same thing over and over and over. Mm -hmm. The fact that you're buying a product to do the automation for you is a viable 
and probably the best way to do this. So Nokia has produced a standard set of automations. They're inside FSS. They're standardized. They're repeatable. They're tested. They're validated. If you And you can still write code. We'll talk about NDK in a minute, but you can still write code on top of a fabric services system mm-hmm. and get all the benefits of talking to SR Linux or talking to the fabric underneath without having to do all of that. I need to tell the device to do this, this, you know, it just Indeed. the abstractions are yeah. useful. Yeah, yeah, super, super useful. And of course, we take an approach throughout all of this. You know, there's uh, some competitors that like to take this kind of almost like a black box approach where, you know, if you're using their switches and their operating system and their controller, then it almost becomes like invisible to you. And your only interaction yeah. really is through that that controller. So we use standard interfaces everywhere in the in mm. the system. So, you know, we got to ride the GRPC wave and uh, build GNMI and kind of streaming telemetry and everything. into this. So these are standard interfaces. You mm-hmm. could rewrite... Uh, fabric services system if you really wanted to and and write your own controller for SR Linux devices that's totally viable. And of course, the, the alternate is true is that fabric services system, whilst today we don't have uh, kind of multi-vendor support, there's nothing stopping us from adding that integration down the line. Like it's architected in such a way that there's a kind of normalization layer that you can plug in other operating systems into. So we like to approach these two products as, you know, they work amazing together, but you can pick and choose, you know, if you're the kind of DIY shop that wants to own the controller side of the world, no problem. Or if you want to use our controller potentially with someone else's switches, we want to have a discussion with you. You know, we're, we're pretty open mm-hmm. to the models here. It sounds like you went that open interfaces route, like the, the GRPC and so on for the, you mentioned kind of two major customer use cases. One is I want it to work out of the box and the other is I want to tweak it to my heart's content. And you sort of found the way to do that by writing fabric services system to support those open interfaces where it can just work out of the box. Or if you have specific use cases or operational requirements, you can use what's out there and popular and make it work. Indeed. Yeah. Mm. So maybe since we're, we're doing the uh, overview here, we, we touched on the NetOps development kit NDK. Can you give us a little bit more, uh, give us that the overview on that and we'll, then we'll get into the rest of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So NDK was part of that kind of extensibility story that I mentioned for, for SR Linux. So you know, we're building a new operating system in 2018. And as part of doing that, as you can imagine, you build a bunch of kind of common infrastructure. You know, your apps need to communicate with each other. How do they do that? Your apps need to receive configuration. How do they do that? They need to publish state. How do they do that? So in uh, as we were kind of going through this, we recognized that, hey, it would be pretty nice for customers if we really just opened up all this common infrastructure. So, uh, you know, a customer could write an application or our professional services organization could write an application for a very specific customer use case that's very, you know, targeted to their environment or maybe is just some kind of like nice quality of lifestyle functionality that you typically wouldn't be able to add to the operating system just because it's, you know, monolithic or non-extensible just from like an operational standpoint. So, the NDK is kind of our approach to all of this and that we have all this common infrastructure. Let's find a standardized way to expose it. And again, this uses uh, gRPC and, and protobufs or protocol buffers to, uh, to integrate with applications. Let's third party or any application, really our own applications use the same functionality, interact with kind of the management stack of the system, load their own configuration. And uh, again, we, 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 I think we talked this to death in a, pre- in a previous episode too, where applications kind of are bundled um, with their own schema, their own configuration and state paths. And when they're loaded into the system, they can add it to the system schema. So now you can kind of configure these applications using our management interfaces, our, our GNMI, our CLI, they show up. You can query the state of these applications. You can stream 
on-change the state of these applications. So they really look and feel like they're a native first-class application and it's all nicely decoupled, all gRPC and all that good stuff. So the uh, life cycle of the applications is independent too. So these applications can you know disappear, they can be upgraded, they can come back, load new paths potentially. And really all of the applications in the system kind of function inside that ecosystem. So it's just a, a nice, simple interface for this is how you write network applications. That's uh, that's really what the uh, the NDK is for. Got it. Mm. And we'll dig into that a little bit more. But let's kind of get into, you know, I mentioned in my intro talking about how Nokia interacts with customers and their needs around day one, day zero, day one and day two. I guess we can jump into day zero first, that sort of design feature. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So these are really, uh, and, and again, I don't think we're, you know, industry pioneers and in classifying things like day zero, day one. <laughs> I've definitely heard the industry <laughs> talk about these uh, before. But but for those of you uh, at home who are wondering what happens uh, in day zero, for for example, this is all around kind of before you've done anything physical in, in the fabric. So in FSS or, or really inside of Fabric's life cycle, we think of day zero as you haven't done anything yet, but you're designing a new site. Maybe you're designing extensions to an existing site by adding pods. And we actually want some automation to help you solve those use cases too. I mean, we're in this world of rapidly scaling edge cloud, uh, mm -hmm. as, as you guys are aware. So people are spinning up these little edge locations all the time. And it's not that they're hard because they're edge locations. They're typically quite small, but... It's uh, very, very useful to kind of templatize and turn what an edge location looks like to you into a little bit of a cookie cutter and then to stamp out a bunch of them. Mm. And that's what this day zero kind of design concept inside our, our fabric services system looks for. And yeah. really, it's just a case of you provide some very simple inputs to the system, things like contention ratios, the number of tiers, the type of devices you're looking to you're looking to use. And then it can uh, emit a kind of cable map and a, a design for you. And this mm. design contains everything from, you know, this fiber will be plugged into this port and this other port, right down to you're going to use this kind of control plane, whether it be EBGP or IBGP or OSPF or ISIS or maybe a routing protocol you wrote yourself, right? The so you're actually saying we can that. actually do the whole design of the network in Fabric Services System before you've even bought the hardware? Indeed, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so you this can imagine, is this idea of the model in, yeah. in FSS that I can actually build an entire model of the network. And I think we've talked a few times about actually building a lab as well. Exactly. Using some of the Nokia tools to yeah, you yeah, can actually. You took, so I think of day zero as two parts. Day zero is also speeds and feeds and power consumption and things like that. That's mm -hmm. a lot simpler these days than it was before. Indeed. Because we have a fairly standard set of switches these days. We only have... Generally, we only have one in each category and you get to choose that one. Yep. But the switches are a lot more flexible now than they used to be. They're not oversubscribed. They're, they're all line rate forwarding and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then so day zero is really that before you purchase. But I think the biggest feature is you can go and get fabric services. I think it's free even to, to, for a pilot project. It Set is, it yep. all up, pre-configure your entire network in the model in software, and you can actually see how the whole thing's going to work before you even deploy it, before you even purchase all of the hardware. Although that would be kind of not a good idea, but you really want to get the hardware underway sort of thing. I, yeah, I want to make yeah, sure I understand yeah. what you're saying. So I get Fabric Service the system, I run the software, I enter some common parameters based on the design of my network, my requirements, and then yep. Fabric Service the system essentially spits out, okay, you want 
X number of switches and you're going to, I haven't racked a switch. I haven't plugged into cable, but it's going to tell me all the things I need and even how to, to wire it up. Exactly. Yep. We'll generate a cable map for you that you can hand over to your, your on-site team. Hmm. We generate mm. all of the configuration. So, you know, if you want to, uh, if you're doing BGP and you want to allocate ASNs and you're running EVPNs, you want to allocate ESIs and VNIs and pretty much every type of possible allocation you can think of, we take care of. Um, so it's super duper simple. You give us the pools we can use. Of course, we can't figure out those for ourselves. But You don't have you, to discover them at two in the morning <laughs> on a Saturday as you're doing the deployment that you've forgotten no, to do. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you templatize, you build it first, you try it out in that digital sandbox we were, we were talking mm. about. So you can actually yep. mock up designs there. You can log into the devices and see what happens if I take this device out of service in this design. Mm. All of those kind of what-if questions you can answer before you've deployed any hardware right inside a mm. uh, fabric services system. Are That's a massive any... change to day zero because you can go in and play, learn, you can give it to other people. The digital sandbox, me, and it's a complete copy excepting for some of the hardware functions yep. of the actual network. So you can log into the devices and do show run, you know, you show can. state, show whatever, if that's what, and do training on it for that matter. Yep. Yep, exactly. So it's an awesome tool for, you know, before you do anything, it's kind of a, a nice, safe sandbox, if you mm. will, <laughs> to try these uh, to try these things out. Yep. Am I restricted by design? Is, I'm, is it just you get leaf spine or a glow fabric and that's it? Or Yeah, so our designs, for sure, we take, we're, we're opinionated on what like a data center design looks like today. Mm. So using that design tool from a topology standpoint, you're going to, I mean, you get to pick within some parameters, you know, how many stages is it? What classes of devices? What kind of contention ratios do you want? But you certainly end up with a glow design at, okay. the, uh, at the end of the day. Mm. What we actually did uh, earlier this year. That's is we not entirely apart. opinionated when everybody in the industry uses it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's that's true. That is true. But okay, true. I, you know, I, go, on, right. go on, go on. If, <laughs> if you want to true. feel that's opinionated, you know, who am I to judge? All right, all right. We're following best practices, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, uh, what we do let you do, though, is we do let you uh, import a topology. So if you actually are opinionated yourself on what a design should look like and maybe Chloe isn't mm. for you, we do let you build like uh, essentially an arbitrary topology uh, that you can you can kind of plug into the system. And then we kind of discover what we call kind of the edge links and the inter-switch links within that topology. And then we go through our typical allocation and we can still build the underlay. We do all the, all the nice stuff, but you have a lot more control over kind of what that topology looks like. So both sides mm -hmm. of the world exist. We see the vast majority of customers using kind of the the templatized approach that we uh, yeah. that we have. Yeah. Okay, so that's day zero. Day one then is deployment. So I've got my model. I've uh, racked up all my hardware, plugged it all in. Now I actually need an operating system and I need to start pushing packets. Indeed, yeah. So the biggest part I think of day one is really how you bootstrap the the devices. So Basically, between day zero and day one, there's an expectation that you know someone's coming and cabled everything up for you. Um, you know, your on-site engineer has plugged everything in correctly or maybe incorrectly, uh, which we will detect, of course. But the biggest part is how do you bootstrap the devices? So um, again, there's no real reinventing the wheel here. We uh, we use zero-touch provisioning, which is you can almost think of it like pixie booting a switch. Um, mm -hmm. And applying some initial kind of uh, customization, initial configuration, bringing it onto management, those kinds of things. So Within Fabric Services System, we provide a DHCP server. If you just plug it into the same management domain or have some kind of relay functionality to get DHCP packets to it, 
It will provide all the necessary bootstrapping functionality, including imaging of the devices, pushing the initial configurations, loading certificates, pretty much everything you would have to do. Updating uh, OS, updating the NOS if needed. Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Mm -hmm. All of that is kind of encompassed inside uh, our Zero Touch provisioning framework. So you select the version that you want in that day zero uh, phase and say, yeah, I'm, I want to run, uh, you know, release 22.6, for example. And if you plug in any devices that are higher than 22.6, we downgrade them. If they're lower mm -hmm. than 22.6, we upgrade them. Basically ba baselining every, all the bits of hardware that you've uh, that you've plugged into the fabric. Mm -hmm. But I don't have to write an Ansible script that does all that. That's no. all just part of fabrics. <laughs> no, you <don't>. Sorry. <laughs> I do like to, I like to point out that a lot of people say to me like, you know, but I can do that in Python and Ansible. I'm like, sure, you could write an Ansible that detects that it's, in a, you know, not the version you want and you've either got to upgrade it or downgrade it. But you've got to write all of that code and test it. Yeah. And honestly, that's what I pay the vendors for, right? It's kind Indeed. of. Indeed. Yeah. And that's what I want to use things like Fabric Services System for is that I want to write code that sits above Fabric Services. I think there's more valuable, uh, you know, more valuable use of coding sitting above FSS than I do sitting programming, you know, the, the SI Linux myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, th I think most, I mean, I shouldn't say all, but most customers are coming to that kind yeah. of same conclusion that what... Mm their engineers are really good at is understanding that customer's specific business logic, how they want to operate things. And that doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean they want to go and understand how do you do a GNMI subscription to a box to dump state, right? They can totally yeah. figure that out. I mean, no one's saying that this is rocket science, but no. is that where you want to spend your cycles, right? That's yeah. what it really comes down to. I don't want, I want to use FSS as my Ansible in a way. Indeed. Yep, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Am I also pushing config from Fabric Services System? You are. Yeah, exactly. So we follow that whole kind of like single source of truth. I am the intent manager. You give me your kind of abstract input. We will normalize that into some configuration and push it down to the to the device. Um, if there's any deep, what we call deviations, although uh, I, I think the name is pretty self-explanatory, you know, someone <laughs> coming in through some out of band interface and configuring the switch, we actually flag those immediately to the uh, to the fabric services system using all that magic on change telemetry. So. If you're a user that uh, kind of wants to keep the network in sync and want to be aware anytime it goes out of sync, you kind of get these notifications and you can decide what to do with them. You can say, uh, yeah, that's my new intent. And so I'm just going to, to pull that in and distribute it across the fabric. Or you can say, nope, you know, some guy came in last night and changed some ACLs and I don't actually like what he did and I'm going to push back down the original intent. So... All of that is kind of encompassed as part of uh, deployment. You can imagine maybe those cables weren't plugged in correctly. Mm -hmm. So we'll actually crawl the LLDP topology uh, when the, the fabric first comes up and we can point out when you know this link should have been plugged into that interface that's actually plugged into that interface. This, of course, you can give to your on-site engineer to go and correct. So lots of kind of uh, tools to get the fabric up into a state where it's ready to onboard workloads. That's kind of what we consider as part of this uh, deployment phase, including some initial deployments of workloads, right? So, mm. you know, you may have storage infra that you know is going to be everywhere. So you may as well go and connect that service everywhere. Stuff like that. Mm. It's all kind of part of that uh, that deployment phase. And is this now where I also bring in the digital sandbox? Indeed. Yes, exactly. So where we, uh, where we see digital sandbox going is kind of this tool for change control in the network. The, the most common way it's used today, and, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge this, is that it's used just for prototyping. It's used for... I want to spin up like a small lab and I just want to try out something or uh, as you pointed out, Greg, as kind of a, mm. a learning tool, right? People yeah. want to just, mm. uh, I want to learn how your operating system works and so they can spin mm. it up. But 
I think we're getting to the point finally where we have all the pieces where digital sandbox can actually be used for genuine validation of an outcome or more to the point it can be used to validate if I take in this input, what will the outcome be? So Mm -hmm. as part of deployment, you could change a topology, for example, right? You may design upfront, but find out that you thought you had two extra racks physically than you have. So what happens if you remove those two racks from your fabric? Does it mean you can potentially remove spines? These are the kind of questions that you you may come up with. And Digital Sandbox is a great tool for for figuring those out. And especially if you're going to grow as well. So exactly. part of the cycle here is if you're going to add more hardware or replace it. When you look at your spine and you say, oh, if I replace this, from, you know, went from a 32 by 40 gig and upgraded it to 100 gig, then what would it look like and how would my migrations go? You can model, as I understand, a lot of that. Exactly. Yeah, just through like two simple clicks of a button, right? Change the speed and then change the number of racks and then Mm. regenerate your topology, update your sandbox, and you now have a live fabric that looks exactly like uh, whatever the inputs were that you gave to us. So super, super powerful design tool. And I think when we look at kind of day two plus operations, this is actually really where it starts to shine, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move into that day two phase. I've got the network up and running. Uh, I'm using Fabric Service System to deploy it. Uh, mm-hmm. All the config is there. I've got workloads running. Now I need to make sure things are happening the way I expected them to. Yep, exactly. So the first part of that, I think, is that deviations concept I mentioned, right? Like constantly keeping the network uh, or more to the point, keeping the controller in lockstep with the network based on other changes that come in. I mean, you know, we all have uh, engineers that like to uh, go into CLI and make changes. <laughs> That's uh, an inevitable thing in this industry for probably a little while. So uh, you need to be able to catch those. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. It just means you need to be aware of them. So mm. I mm. think, uh, and th- this is really, I think, what uh, one of the necessary pieces to kind of proper intent-driven or, you know, closed-loop uh, telemetry, which I think is, uh, you know, loosely all intent is, right? It's here's what I want. And you can add some abstraction there, you know, go from business logic to kind of network configuration. And have the controller push that down and maintain it is kind of the summary of, of at least what we consider to be intent. And the, that last part it leans in heavily to, well, you need something that actually gives you visibility to when things change. So I think that's a big part of, of day two plus operations is just, okay, I now have set my intent. It's good. I'm happy with it. But the controller needs to enforce that over a long life cycle, right? Not just, you know, a few months after the initial deployment. So that's a big part of it. We're also getting into a state in the the fabric where other than day zero and day one, you mentioned there's a a, a silly amount of change coming in, Greg, but a a lot of that is being driven by kind of machines or kind of events and external systems, right? Yeah. I mean, just to expand that discussion out, it's like IP storage is now being distributed and you don't want to have to say, oh, storage is only in that rack. You actually Mm -hmm. want it in every rack. You want If you're building a distributed IP storage system, you don't want to say that switch over there is where the storage is because that switch goes out, you lose all your storage, and that's bad, right? Mm -hmm. You want to have a bit everywhere and it helps with regen. Or uh, what we're also seeing is, you know, VMs moving around the network and the loads shift around. And the days of, you know, the network being not changing from day to day or even, you know, now it changes from hour to hour as VMs are spawned or Kubernetes clusters come out and container stacks are deployed over there or wherever it might be. Look at what Tanzu is doing to a lot of VMware workloads is putting enormous demands on the network. And I mean, that leads into a discussion we'll have soon about telemetry and visibility. But, you know, those ongoing changes, you don't want to be around 
spending all your day watching changes and you need the help desk to just go, sure, or give an API to a developer and say, yeah, sure, you want to spawn 50 containers? Yeah, just just go here and do that. I don't want to be worried about it in my physical network or in my overlays. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah. So the question is, how do you bridge these two sides of the world, right? And we, uh, in, in FSS, we have something we call the Connect service. And this is kind of like a, uh, it's a kind of plugin-driven model for I'm going to connect compute stacks to kind of the control plane of the network is a, is a decent way to think of it. And that if I spin up a pod in Kubernetes and it could be a storage pod that I need to you know move my storage service around for, we're going to have that automatically trigger change in the fabric. So no longer do you have kind of some higher level orchestrator that needs to talk to the network first and maybe build some services and then talk to kind of your, uh, your compute stack, whether it be Kubernetes or OpenStack or VMware or you know, something in the future and have those two kind of exchange information to stitch the two sides of the world. Now we kind of take all of our input from that compute stack. So your developers, kind of your, your application guys, they're just using their clusters and their automation tools, how they, how they have been up until now. But now they don't have to touch the network at all. The network mm-hmm. is just constantly staying in sync with, oh, that pod moved over to that rack. That's fine. I'll just, yeah. I'll just push the VLAN over there. Mm. So a huge amount of kind of the ongoing change in a network is uh, is being driven by those events. Because, of course, the compute stacks are churning all the time, right? You know, you can, mm. Kubernetes has kind of popularized the idea that you're just going to run services wherever there's compute. So we need to stitch the network to wherever there's compute dynamically based on the services on that compute, um, which is a pretty challenging problem, but something that we have solved in a in mm-hmm. fabric services system. So is Connect then kind of like an agent on the compute cluster that's able to communicate? How do you how do you get that communication with these these compute resources? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a mix depending on the type of cluster you have. So. If you're running VMware, we can just kind of integra- integrate with their API. Okay. Um, that's, that's nice and easy. So vSphere On, says, hey, this VM came up, I need a VLAN. Exactly. And you make it yep, happen. Yep. You need to stitch a VLAN for me. Here's the compute information. You know, Here's the interface it's on using LLDP or some other topology discovery mechanism. And we'll stitch the service based on that. So uh, that's on VMware, but you know, OpenStack has their whole ML2 plugin uh, architecture, which is a little more involved. You have to actually integrate kind of in the uh, in the controller itself, the OpenStack controller. And Kubernetes does something kind of similar. Um, in their case, you there's in classic Kubernetes fashion, there's about ten different ways to, <laughs> to solve this. Um, but CNIs seem to be the uh, the typical approach, mm-hmm. where you kind of have some binary that sits on every worker node, and when when pods are spun up, you all that binary and the binary will go and, you know, based on the information you give it, it'll it'll stitch the network for you. So a little bit of a mix in in terms of deployment, depending on the compute stack you're using. So have you developed your own CNI for this or can you use existing CNIs? Yeah, so we we do have our own. Um, we also have kind of more of a controller-driven or an operator-driven, to use the, the Kubernetes language correctly, um, implementation of it as well, where you don't necessarily need the CNI but you need something. You need like a, a controller pod that's running inside the cluster and will listen for, for network attachment definitions, which are these multis things that allow you to spin up multiple networks um, and will stitch the network for you. It just depends on whether or not you want the network to be a blocking part of the service, in which case you need the CNI because that's kind of the only way to block pods from being spun mm, up. Or okay. if you just want to attach the network and if the network doesn't come up, that's that's fine. Uh, you want that to happen asynchronously. It's it's up to you in terms of the style of mm. workloads you're deploying. 
I was not surprised to hear you mention Kubernetes, but OpenStack kind of raised my eyebrows. Are you seeing a lot of OpenStack implementations? <laughs> I mean, it's it's definitely declining. I, I wish we were building this in a phase where we could have skipped OpenStack, believe me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I, I will say, you know, we have we've had existing products in Nokia in the past that have done this ML2 integration. So we had a, a pretty easy liftoff point to integrate this into our fabric services mm. system. But but yeah, I would to uh, to answer the, the question you, you you didn't ask, Drew. Uh, OpenStack is declining, um, <laughs> and unfortunately, it hasn't declined enough. Spin on it. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah, I so, think it'll be interesting. It's interesting that it's still out there and, you know, there are some vendors still pushing OpenStack solutions. And at the end of the day, if you're going to support this software orchestration capability, you have to support it. And otherwise you're only solving part of the solution. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's a it's a prerequisite to being deployed in a lot of scenarios. So mm. you kind of do it or, uh, you know, you, you kind of pass over opportunities to your competitors. Sure. Mm. Yep. So other parts of kind of this day two plus operations, and I, I think it's probably a good opportunity to get into some of the meat of uh, of digital sandbox and um, how we how we see that being used. So we have uh, this general philosophy that if you're going to make a high risk change, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll step back a little bit further. As an industry, we like to stage and test changes before we roll them out into production. Right. We use labs, often physical, mostly physical, actually. Mm. And often these aren't full representations of what production looks like. Often the integration environment is slightly different. And there's whole teams and, uh, you know, engineers that work to keep these things as closely in sync with production as possible, often not succeeding. As I said, Digital Sandbox is a great tool for kind of design and just mocking up topologies and prototyping things. But I think where its real power is, is as a change tool. So... You know, we've we've heard the terms CI/CD and 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 NetOps. I'm, again, we didn't coin these these terms, but I think Digital Sandbox is kind of a, a key component to how you do actual NetOps in a real network. In the sense that you can imagine that you're deploying a high risk change, and as part of that change, you go and run it inside the Digital Sandbox. So you spin up a digital twin of your network, same scale, you know, potentially hundreds of nodes. And you roll out your change into that sandbox. Now, it's the same management plane, the same control plane that's running in production. Yes, it's not the same data path because these are all containers running inside Kubernetes. So we're not we're not simulating the chips here. But it lets you kind of validate, uh, you know, I'm rolling out an upgrade. How should I roll out that upgrade most effectively to not bring down service? And you can almost prototype until you get the change right, codify that process, and then roll it out into production. So... We see it as kind of the CI pipeline for the network almost. And we're still integrating this ourselves right now. Digital Sandbox and, and FSS are kind of, they're controlled through the same interface, but we don't have the workflows of, I'm going to roll out a change. And as part of that change, the first thing I do is roll it into Sandbox. We kind of, right now we expect the user to go and do that. But you can imagine almost like you're committing a change to a Git repository. You know, you're committing a change to production and the first thing that happens is there's some CI that runs. Does this actually work in production? And, you know, your sandbox spins up. There's a test harness that sits on top of a digital sandbox. And there's some tests that Nokia have written. There's some tests that maybe you've written based on your specific environment. And only if the change passes all of those tests, do you kind of exit the pipeline successfully? And the final step of that, of course, is kind of the CD part where you actually roll the change out into production. That's really where we're pushing digital sandbox. And we see this being useful for kind of those high risk changes. But 
it's also a way, if we look at, again, I'll draw comparisons to the application side of the world. Do you think customers would be updating databases and web servers as frequently as they do, which can sometimes be, you know, monthly uh, or even even more frequent if they didn't have like some something like Kubernetes to orchestrate it? And if they didn't have confidence in kind of these CI pipelines that are being used to test changes? A bit of a leading question. I think the answer is mm. no, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we we see fabric services system and digital sandbox as being kind of the, the the two products that allow this workflow for a networking world. And you know we have some nuance in the networking world, uh, and something I haven't spoken about yet that uh, we have talked about adding to digital sandbox for quite a while and have finally done is being able to stream a bunch of telemetry out of production and not just kind of ingest the configuration into the sandbox, but also ingest some of the state. And yeah, I think we talked about this on one of the uh, the earlier podcasts. And mm-hmm. we actually demoed this, I think it was about three weeks now at Networking Field Day 29, where, uh, you know, not just configuration is in the sandbox now. A big part of what happens in the network is state, right? What BHP routes am I seeing? Uh, what interfaces are up? Which ones are down? Mm. Our production networks never look like this utopian view that we would ever spin up inside right. this containerized ecosystem. So... Being able to inject some of the state into the digital sandbox. So if an interface is down in production, it's down in the sandbox. So when you roll out a change and test that change in the sandbox, you're not getting a, this change would work if your network was perfect. You're getting a, this change will work and your network is not perfect. Yeah. Or if there's a route flap, you'll see that route flap. Indeed. If you've got some sort of routing loop, obscure routing loop, and then you'll see that. Or this IBGP peer won't come up. You'll see it, you know. Uh, yep. The only thing you won't see is if you've got a firewall in the middle or some some something like that. But it's still exactly. reasonably good. Yeah, yep. you're well in the yep. way. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, going back to your to your lead in on telemetry, Greg. That's where that is super duper important, right? And mm. that if you can't get the information out of the network, how do you possibly have any chance of you know kind of injecting it into your sandbox? How do you have any chance of you know with some degree of certainty knowing that if you test something and it passes your pipeline in the sandbox, then it will work in production. So we feel this is a necessity uh, as an industry that state is such a huge part of how our networks operate. And if the point of these pipelines is to act as change control, which seems like the logical conclusion for them, then state is a necessary ingredient to make that pipeline successful. My point about telemetry and monitoring and visibility is, you know, we used to monitor networks and now we have visibility. And what I mean by that is we don't just poll a bunch of SNMP stats on a five-minute interval. Visibility is we see route tables, we see MAC address tables, we see, you know, we can monitor not just bits per second, we can actually monitor whether chipsets inside of the device are being specifically overloaded or mm-hmm. we can, you know, telemetry means we can get streaming flow information, but we can also get flow information streaming off the device. Like instead of polling for CPU, we can stream that off. It, it proactively yeah. gets ejected from the device to the console, right? Yep, yep. But then then there's also this angle of observability where we actually start stitching all that together. So it's one thing to say, I'm getting telemetry from a device and now I can build visibility. I actually now want to say, what's time taken for a packet to go from this point of the network to that point? Are all of the circuits in that end-to-end path viable? I don't have to go and puzzle them all out. You know, mm-hmm. this packet goes to this path and and... And that is key because Fabric Service System builds that in to some extent. I don't know if it's necessarily, maybe you can give us some how comprehensive that goes. 
Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. So a, a big part of this, uh, again, as, as you said, right, links down to what information we can get out of the device and at what rate. So yeah, gone are the days of doing SNMP polling and trying to keep your controller in sync based on, you know, some as low as you can go polling interval. The whole concept of uh, of streaming telemetry is that you will be made aware as and when something changes, right? So yeah. fundamentally, it's uh, a totally different design. It's a, almost like a push model rather than a, a pull model. Uh-huh. And yeah. as much as it sounds like this might increase the burden on the controller, typically uh, it actually reduces it because if a field doesn't change, you don't get an update. So you're basically in sync, right? Mm. So that, that's kind of the magic of streaming telemetry is, you know, you'll subscribe to all the paths and you'll get a full dump of here's the current state of that device. And then only as and when paths are changing values, like a BGP session going down and that triggers a bunch of routes to be exchanged or to be purged. Those are the updates you're getting, but you're not continually getting all the things you already got. So this helps uh, kind of the controller kind of focus more on the relevant information rather than doing a diff versus its previously cached version of uh, what it thought the network looked like. And of course, this leads you, of course, as you as you mentioned, Greg, into kind of this observability paradigm where yeah. we can take logs off the device, we can take S-flow off the device, we can take all the streaming telemetry off the device and kind of crunch and correlate it and not just kind of present data, but present conclusions to an end user that, you know, here's our suspicion about why this looks bad. You can also do correlation, of course. You know, in FSS, we have a, a graph database, as you may expect, where we can actually kind of build relationships between objects. Mm, and so right. if um, if like an interface dies and that triggers a bunch of kind of flow on, uh, you know, telemetry state changes, which we may or may not generate alarms out of, we don't have to pile your screen with all that. We can say, well, the interface is down. And if you are interested in what that means, then you can kind of drill into it further. But you don't necessarily need to see all that stuff when you're just trying to debug and figure out what the, uh, what the problem was. So... Mm. All these correlations, uh, of course, exist inside a, a fabric services system, yeah. and actually, and that's and that's so important these days because the network, with all these changes going on, debugging the network is much harder yep. than it ever was before. You're not yep, going to get it done at the CLI. You're not going to get it done with a bunch of charts and go, "Oh, look, that's gone to zero." Therefore, the link's down. You need to be monitoring signal levels on active optical cables or digital exactly. active yep. connectors. You know, when you've got copper connectors, they often fail more often than opticals. Yep. And so you need to be monitoring the signal levels or is the forward, is the FEC failing? You know, is the data, is the errors on that particular link that I, the signal rate doesn't necessarily, you know, is the opt, is the, the SFP failing? Mm-hmm. And those are the sorts of things that we never used to worry about. But as we get to higher, higher performance, and higher, higher speeds, the cabling itself becomes less and less trustworthy for what I'm seeing a lot of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so having that fine-grained telemetry, right, being able to query, you know, DB loss on a fiber on a on-change basis, these are all things that we've never been able to do. If you wanted to check that back in the day, you would run uh, an SNMP get in a for loop every, or as often as you possibly could. Um <laughs> Across, uh, you know, in number of optics and in number hopefully of Hopefully the device didn't have a memory leak in the SNMP thread. Not that that ever <laughs> happened to me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's honestly a proper paradigm shift in how we retrieve information from from the network. And rather than I'm going to tell you what I want to receive and you give it to me when I ask, you almost like plant seeds and say, here are all the paths I'm interested in. Just tell me if they change. And yeah. your yeah. controller can then kind of back off. And if there's a degree of high churn in one area of the network. Mm. 
you're getting information from there. So you're processing events there faster than if you were running a poll loop and querying the whole yeah. network. Because the complexity the of these network. networks, like the BGP tables and the, the state inside of an eVPN, and if the, the VLANs are being whipsawed around the network as the Kubernetes or the VMs rotate around, then, yep. you know, you, you can't do it the old way. It's just something that some people miss. You need something else. And, and uh, at the risk of being, a, you know, a bit whatever, but, you know, Python and Ansible, you can write all that code. Yeah, you could. But honestly, do you, <laughs> you know, or, you know, you need a, a tool that's going to, to give you most of this so that you can just focus on, hang on this, you know, it's out of the change window. And now all of a sudden the route tables are failing or something's flapping, but everything else that's moving is perfectly legitimate. You know, Kubernetes clusters are being spun up and spun down. That's normal behavior, you know? Yep. So yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, so there's a lot that goes into this operations bucket, I guess, is the, uh, is, yeah. is the point here. And I, I think that's kind of the uh, the crux of it, actually, that, you know, typically as an industry, we have tried our best to solve predominantly the day one uh, scenario and a little bit of the configuration of day two. Like, <laughs> our automation has always focused on configuration, right? Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you know, certainly leading up until day two is very important, but after day two, a lot of the change that's happening in the network is being driven by machines. So yes. it seems we've missed this. We this used to spend here. years in day zero working out what to buy. And then we deploy it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, would, it would be 10 years until we bought the next network, you know, sort of thing. And, yeah. and now it's down to three to five years in the cycle for hardware, for some networks at least. Yep. And, yep. you know, so all of a sudden, if you're getting to rotate your hardware on a more often basis, you don't care so much because it's only a few years until it gets replaced again. So then it becomes how quickly can I deploy it the day one? And then it becomes, if I'm going to replace it all the time, how do I keep this operating? every day mm -hmm. without having to be on call 24 hours a day. Like, I want to go home at five o'clock. I don't, I think I've said this plenty of times, but you know, the goal is to go home at five o'clock and sleep at night, not panicking that something's going to go wrong. And this is why day two is the most important. And the vendors are now recognizing that. Exactly. So I want to transition to some futures. We've talked a lot about where the product is now. Yep. And I know in certain, we've talked about different parts of your product. We've had a whole bunch of podcasts on the network over the last two years talking about the different parts. But where is it going next? What's the where do you see SLNX Fabric Services System and NDK moving, say, in the next three to five? Yeah, great question. A little bit of like a, a foreshadowing going on in, in the previous <laughs> segments, I think, around using the digital twin for for more and more, using our digital sandbox for more and more use cases. So, you know, we have this architecture in SLNX where we really think of uh, the system not as an operating system, like a, a monolith, but really as a set of services, right? I, I hesitate mm. to use the term microservices because we don't have Kubernetes here yet, TBD if that comes in the future, but a set of services. And one thing we've been working on probably for the last 12 to 18 months is really treating them like a, a set of services. I mean, we we have this already with, you know, Yang models are kind of are baked into the application. So in theory, you can remove an application from the system and the paths it contributed, you know, the configuration and state paths would simply disappear. We've actually had that ever since we introduced the NDK, because again, that's, that's how, how all of the management stack kind of works. But now we wanted to think about uh, kind of the upgrade path. And, you know, we're not the first vendor to kind of mm. approach a kind of service style upgrade for the operating system. But we do think we're the only one that can maybe make it work properly in the sense that 
that management stack stuff I was I was talking about is actually super important if you want to do more mm. than patching. So I think patching is pretty much a solved problem. You know, you can hold on to state. You can almost do like a warm reboot where you kind of let the ASIC figure its stuff out and you reboot the operating system, maybe execute into a new kernel and start the applications again and they kind of audit the data path and come back. So that lets, that lets you do patching. But... Um, and maybe even lets you do uh, kind of in-service software upgrades, but you're kind of whacking the system with a hammer, right? You're taking mm -hmm. down all the control plane, all the management plane. So we have these services. Um, we wanted to focus on kind of iterating at this service level. And again, this goes into what I said about Kubernetes and kind of applications and the amount of change we see in applications these days and how slow or almost like stagnant the uh, kind of the network applications are uh, as a... Uh, as a you know a contrast mm. so where we see this going um and a lot of the the area we've been spending uh investment is around okay how do i iterate at a at a service level inside the operating system so for one you can't do this without some kind of test harness because most customers out there in fact i'm sure most of the audience listening are uh screaming at me for suggesting that we should iterate more frequently in the network but mm. it's really fundamentally how devops and kind of the application side of the world have managed to achieve kind of the feature cadence and and stability, which sounds counterintuitive that you're making more changes and it leads to higher stability. But fundamentally, if you think of changes as, you know, a block of things that need to get done, a block of code changes, you can imagine if that block of code changes stretches from BGP to OSPF to the management stack to, uh, I don't know, the data path, and you yeah. try and make all these together, right? So you you make them all together. How on earth do you debug that, right? Like which part broke? You, you don't actually know. Wait until we get to CXL3 and composable <laughs> memory systems. And, you know, they're talking now about Ethernet connected hard drives using DPUs yep. to stripe the storage, right? So that you mm -hmm. just have a rack full of Ethernet connected hard disk drives and the DPUs is actually doing the writing of the storage files and the blocks. Yep. And, yep. you know, think about how that changes your Ethernet network or... CXL3 is going to be using RDMA over IP, you know, mm -hmm. and it's going to be doing direct memory accesses between servers over the IP protocol. In the old days, we used to do that in InfiniBand right. because we needed a reliable network <laughs> transport, right? And it was a completely separate network built just to do that one thing, right? Yeah. Yep. And that's where we're headed. Now, that's, you know, that's peering along, that's using my telescope for the future. That's it's a mm -hmm. bit whatever, but that is probably going to come faster. There's only two ways out of the problem with technology that we have today. One is to either go slow, go back to where we were 20 or 10 or 15 years ago, where networking never really changed, servers never really changed. You know, storage engines were always these proprietary boxes of, you know, mystic magic and so forth, and just slow down the rate of change. Or the other way is to move faster until we get through this period where the technology is still unstable and weak and, and push more and more technology on it. And yep. the world has chosen the, the second. It's, it's not going to stop. Yep. Can you help me understand kind of this vision of services? Are we talking about running like a BGP service and an EVPN service and a VXLAN service? And that could even be just running on compute while I'm letting the ASIC on the switch just pump packets as fast as we can? What, what does this look like? Yeah, potentially, potentially. I, I don't know if we'll go as far as disaggregating them. 
I mean, there's some functions that I think absolutely are ripe for for disaggregations and pulling them off the switch itself and running it on the compute stacks. Mm -hmm. We've seen, I mean, uh, Google released a white paper, I think it was their Espresso architecture a few years ago, where they were doing something similar to this, where they ran the BGP stack on a on a compute and they just had kind of the, the switch expose a pretty small shim style API. Mm -hmm. So I, we've seen that. It does exist, but I don't know if it's ripe for kind of broad consumption just yet. And if the, the value add you get is actually worth the complexity it brings just from a deployment standpoint. But it's more a case of we have this concept of, you know, DevOps and CICD, meaning that you are almost trailing the kind of main or, or master branch of a repository, right? That's kind of the general idea is that your main version of the software is always in a good state because you're always doing CICD. So your, your main branch is always in a state where you can cut a branch at pretty much any point. Now, of course, that's the utopian view. I don't, I'm not saying that that's always necessarily true, but we see that kind of perpetuating down to the, to the network. So with Fabric Services System, kind of our vision here is that, you know, we know based on what configuration you're using in the network, what bugs you'd be exposed to, for example. So if you set this Yang path, we know you're exposed to a certain bug. And when, you know, release notes are generated, we can take in the new image and suggest that you upgrade to it. That's probably an, an example of mm. where we think we'll start. Where I think we want to end up is that the controller has the, the level of intelligence to know, for example, that it can take an A switch down and the B switch will serve the network. This is already something we kind of do in FSS today because we understand the topology. And we can actually make intelligence uh, decisions around how we upgrade the services themselves. So it's it's basically reducing the iteration boundaries. Fundamentally, that's how you can think of it. That rather than re-imaging my entire operating system and going from release 22.6 to, I don't know, 23.3, we will instead say, oh, all you want is a new feature in BGP. Well, you can just upgrade BGP. And Fabric Services hmm. System and the digital sandbox are kind of the mechanisms in which you can validate that that change would actually be successful, right? It would have the desired outcome. And also because you've written SR Linux to be modular in that I don't have to re reboot the entire NOS just to upload a function. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So lower blast radius, smaller change, right? That's kind of the philosophy here is that we're making uh, a higher cadence of change, but each one of those changes is much smaller and has some automatic testing that has occurred in order for the change to be validated. But you couldn't do that without an orchestration layer, which is where Fabric Services System comes exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think we could have this functionality inside SR Linux and just say, you know, away to the races, guys. Like, figure it out. <laughs> yeah, do it with a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 If there was no Kubernetes, people wouldn't be doing this. Right. Yeah. So in the same paradigm, if we don't have a orchestration system sitting above the network that has some awareness of this, has some mechanism to roll out these changes uh, in a fairly sane manner people wouldn't be doing it in the network either. So the SR Linux architecture paired with the kind of uh, fabric services system orchestration layer is something we see where some of the operational burden of managing a fabric can actually be part of the product as opposed to just being pushed to the end user and saying, you know, go schedule an upgrade. And because of the complexity of that, they typically happen every two to three years. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've seen this forever, right? So. Yeah. It's just a different way of thinking. And I, I know that a lot of uh, the audience are, uh, are are probably not super happy to hear me talking about this, but I uh, I promise you it leads to a higher degree of reliability in the network. And it actually makes like this, the same tool chain can be applied to everything else you're doing, right? If you're deploying a new service, if you're 
wanting to know what happens if you take a node out of service. What happens if you fail a link? What happens if two mm. nodes fail at the same time? All of these can be uh, not just you know simulated in the digital sandbox, but you can have the test harness that rides on top of it that automatically tests the result and can actually compare. You know, your packets went from A to the B path the first time you ran this test, then you made your change, and now they've gone from you know B to D or something. So all of this is just to give people visibility into how the network's going to behave if you perform some activity. So we've been talking uh, kind of futuristic. Can we bring it back down now to something more concrete? Do you have examples of customers using these capabilities in the real world? Yes, for sure. So to start with uh, with SR Linux, we have seen uh, a lot of uh, NDK applications that have been built since we since we launched in 2020. Honestly, the the spectrum in which these have been built is it's it's awesome to see. You know, we have some customers that are building simple like topology comparison tools. Like I want to go and phone home to my topology database, which is in some external system, and I want to compare it on device and flag if there are changes and have the device do that, right? So, you know, whilst FSS may have the design topology, it only sees the the portion of the topology it has kind of visibility to. Um there may be kind of edge systems that are part of the topology that you really want to to validate. So that's a cool little like example of someone building a almost like a quality of life uh, NDK application. We actually um, won a deal earlier this year uh, based on an NDK application, actually. So um, we had a customer that had kind of a, a static VXLAN uh, deployment. So, you know, they were using a competitor switches. The competitor hadn't hadn't moved to EVPN yet. So they had no mechanism of just, you know, enabling EVPN and kind of stitching the SR Linux side of the world. Artisanal VXLAN configuration. Ex- exactly. That's handcrafted. a good word. That's a good word. Yep. Handcrafted. <laughs> handcrafted artisanal. Yeah. For yeah. centuries, so, a tradition passed down from... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Over five years in the making. <laughs> yeah. So we had a customer that had this this kind of legacy network and they... Uh, they the, they were loving SR Linux. I think I can say that here. They were loving mm-hmm. SR Linux. And um, they wanted to stitch the two sides of the world together. I mean, classic operation, you know, you stitch them in a DC gateway, you keep them in separate pods, but the customer's uh, network wasn't going to work for that. You know, they needed to bring up these new clusters and potentially have pods span across the two uh, the, the two sets of switches. So they, uh, they wrote an NTK app that basically listens uh, for the config on the on the other switch, so it's kind of it's, it is running in a pull mode because the switch doesn't support telemetry either. And as and when VXLAN tunnels are kind of created, it injects a EVPN route locally. So there's another BGP stack that runs locally on the switch, very lightweight. It's just a Python library. I think they they were using Ryu actually, and will inject the EVPN route, which makes kind of the uh, the the legacy side of the world feel like it's a proper uh, EVPN uh, speaker, and of course. We don't know any better, so we simply stand up a VXLAN tunnel, and you get bidirectional traffic using that. So, <laughs> I think uh, you know the the whole spectrum exists for these applications. It's just a couple of examples where customers have been able to to use this for good. We've seen people uh, kind of do local uh, GNMI subscriptions and expose Prometheus endpoints. So, if you are using time series databases or anything like that, you can just sc- scrape metrics from a proper endpoint as opposed to having to you know, pull them off box and then do something with them there. So there's a huge spectrum um, of these applications that we've talked about at the various conferences and stuff that we've uh, that we've been participating in over the years. But um, mm-hmm. these are often deals that 
customers would be stuck, right? So they would be totally stuck if they didn't. They wouldn't be able to migrate into your solution if they weren't able to address these problems. But those problems aren't unique. They're not a one-off. They're common. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That artisanal VX lens configuration, it was where we started route was we moved to the layer three overlays. And then as time's gone by, they've become, well, pretty much unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an environmental crisis. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've we've seen some some really cool uh, examples of customers extending both the CLI. I mean, we didn't talk about that much uh, much today, but the uh, CLI is also open source, written in Python, has a plugin architecture to it. So we've seen customers write CLI plugins that do simple like show health and health means something entirely different to customer A versus customer B, right? So they can encode some of that logic into the command. So they're, they're not guys when they log into the device, they have kind of some kind of environment specific health that they can display. You know, you might, you might need two BGP sessions up instead of four, and maybe you only care about your uplinks and not your downlinks. Those are the kind of things that you can embed in this logic. So just simple, like quality of life, uh, operational tools, as well as some, you know, general features, right? Like customers writing features essentially to interrupt different systems that maybe wouldn't have interrupted before. So we've seen a, a ton of mileage in the extensibility we've uh, we've given to, uh, to SR Linux. And the other thing is they don't have to wait for Nokia to do it. They can do it themselves if they've got the Exactly. Yep. 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 That's been a, a big sell too. Like we always had that case of looking at uh, the CLI plugins. We always had that case where as a product manager, I have two customers that say, here's what you should add to to a show command. And they both happen to want extensions to the sh- the same show command, which are mutually exclusive from each other. <laughs> which, which which one do you pick? Right? Right. You pick you both to, and say no to both of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we can, right? Now we can. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just, uh, you know, we're getting to that world where people want to kind of get in the weeds and kind of tune the system more to, as I said earlier, their environment, their use case. Um, not everyone's going to do this. Like we we wholly acknowledge that, that, you know, certain enterprises or service providers or even some of the web scalers, right? Some of them just don't have the appetite for this. It's not their core business. They just want the network to work. They might write some simple quality of life things that just, uh, you know, make it work for them. But for the most part, they're not going to change any any fundamental system behavior. And then you have the other side of the spectrum where you know customers are writing applications that are probing the data path. You know things like ping mesh. All of these exist on top of the uh, the NDK now. A lot of them are in open source. You can like crawl around GitHub. You'll you'll find some of them. Understandably, some customers haven't open sourced their their contributions because they're very environmental yeah. uh, to well, very specific to their environment. So. Yeah. But there's a lot of applications out there now, great kind of starting points. There's SDKs and stuff that have been written. So it's becoming easier and easier to consume. Mm. So, so sort of a little community starting to build around the NetOps development. Community. Yep, 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 exactly. All right, I feel like we probably could have gone even longer, but we do have to wrap up. Uh, Bruce, if folks want to dive into all the things we talked about, uh, where should they start? Yeah, for sure. So. If you do a, a quick search in your search engine of choice for Nokia Data Center Fabric Solution, you will find many, many links. I think the the first one, if our SEO is good, should be the one that you want to click. Okay. Yeah. So look for Data Center Fabric Solutions at Nokia. We'll also have a ton of links uh, in the show notes that accompany this podcast, including that link to the uh, Networking Field Day event. If you're curious, come uh, visit us on Packet Pushers. Uh, Bruce, thank you for joining us. And thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. Uh, and thank you for being a listener. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts 
and our community blog, all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.